I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. It was a very bright, shining light, Sarajevo, and they needed to kill that light. From producers Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, explore how art and music sustained hope during the siege of Sarajevo, thanks in part to humanitarians and the band U2. U2, they represent a personification of our resistance. The Hollywood Reporter hails Kiss the Future, moving and inspirational. Kiss the Future! Viva Sarajevo! Kiss the Future, new documentary now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Go to Paramount Plus to try it free. Terms apply. What's up? Welcome back to Barton and Bud. I'm Barton Simmons, along with Bud Elliott. We are from Christmas break, the Christmas holiday. Uh, bowl season is upon us. We're swimming in toddler presents over here in the Simmons household. Um, and I'm fortunate right now that with school out, I've got a, a little window here where hopefully we can talk without me getting interrupted. Uh, Christmas with Liam and the crew go pretty good your way? Went, went pretty well. Uh, he got multiple power wheels. Uh, he's mm-hmm. actually scared to ride in them because he's 18 months old. Uh, but we, he got a garbage truck. So that was a big hit, like a play garbage truck. And the the his reactions are, uh, he hits buttons and make noise. He he loves it, man. It, he's it was, a big garbage cool. guy. I've noticed yeah. that about Liam. Big oh, there's no doubt. Guy. I mean, it, it comes twice a week. You know, Tuesday, Friday mornings, he's he's there. He, he's all about it. That's uh he hears it pull up, ah, garbage truck. So we, we go out there and look at it. Well, thanks, man. Dude. Just a dude loving garbage. Exactly. Uh, so we've got some, uh, some big news that we haven't quite hit on yet. We got, we got Brian Harson to Auburn. We also have some big games coming up. College football playoffs. We're going to break down. Do you want to start with the games? You want to start with Brian Harson? Uh, I think we should probably start with the games here. Uh, just so if, if people are, we're trying to get this out early before all the other podcasts drop their previews. Um, now there's inherent risk in this because we don't know the results of these COVID tests, but I mean, Dan, if, if we waited all year to drop previews before we had all the COVID results, we just never dropped podcasts. And that's, that's not a great business model. Uh, so Trevor is immune though. So, you know, with Trevor immune, that's the, that's probably the, now Justin Fields, Apparently, all he does is hang out in his, his, his apartment, so I'm not worried about him. He's low as risk. As long as those guys are playing. Yeah, yeah. As long as those guys are playing, we're good. Yeah, I, I also think like the next great college football scandal is like we find out that like Nick Saban got the vaccine for everybody like last <laughs> month, you know, just to, just to be safe. Um, all right, so going to New Orleans, Ohio State, Clemson, this is the game that we wanted in the preseason. Like in our preseason brainstorm calls, like man, we got to get Trevor and Justin get the rematch. Ohio State, Clemson, Dabo versus Ryan Day. Like th- this is the sexy matchup of of these playoff games to to me. I mean, you have you have Dabo ranking Ohio State eleventh in the poll, which is kind of hilarious. And going back on what he said prior that uh, you know he wouldn't he didn't think it should be held against them in the preseason that, that they only played X number of games. 
this is this is kind of spicier than it normally would be for teams that don't play, you know, all that often. Um, I'm I'm excited to watch this one, man. I really am. What what stands out to you when you dig into these teams? Honestly, I think that, and I was talking to a, a coach last night, and and he actually, I kind of brought it up, and then he he kind of hit home and 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 sort of convinced me of this point. Um, I think that Dabo is watching Ohio State film right now, and he is licking his chops. And I think he feels like he is going to absolutely like handle this Ohio State team. Because if he didn't think that, why the hell would he be giving them all this bulletin board material? Like, why would he be volunteering all these chips on the shoulders for the Ohio State Buckeyes? I think he is absolutely leaning into the villain role because he knows that they're going to go out there and, and be a lot better. And I think the main, the main reason that, that that confidence is there and the main advantage that this Clemson team has, and look, it's big to, to have seen them coming off that Notre Dame win because of the way they beat Notre Dame. Yes, Trevor Lawrence was awesome running the football. Travis Etienne got off a little bit more, but the past game kind of came alive. And the, the you know, whether it's, uh, EJ Williams, uh, one-handed catch on the sidelines. Some of the young guys starting to emerge. I, I just think Ohio State defensively has some issues in the secondary. They just do. They've got like this is not a great back end, and they've had issues all year long. I think Clemson is the team to exploit those. And, and I'll say this too: on the other side of the ball, I, I don't want to go so far as to say it's been a regression year for for Justin Fields, but it hasn't been sharp. And I do think we've seen a lot of of indec- more in I shouldn't say a lot. We've seen more indecision, more holding on to the football too long, and 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 those sort of issues are gonna pop up when you're playing a Brent Venables defense. So I just think where these teams. Are are sort of where where Ohio State's lacking, I guess, is our areas where uh, Clemson can really um, put the put the heat on and and really kind of um, pin them and pin them in. So I, I think that between those sort of offensive and defensive issues, between Dabo Sweeney kind of uh, telegraphing his confidence here, I'm starting to feel like this could be Clemson taking care of business look it certainly could and i i agree with you you know on, on a lot of those points um i do feel though that they're let's just say this i i don't see much of a path spoiler alert here for the irish to beat alabama right it's it's difficult for me to imagine that happening it's not saying it's possible but it's it's not likely seven and a half here is is a decently big number and clemson is playing much better down the stretch with the return of Trevor Lawrence. They're playing better with the return of, or rather with the emergence of Cornell Powell at outside receiver. Cause they, 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 you know, they already have, they already have a nice slot and they already have ETN, but Ohio state is talented enough. I, I do think that if they click here, they can spring the upset. And we didn't pre-plan this with, you know, Barton saying, I want to take the Clemson side. And I, I want to take the Ohio state side. I think it's just kind of how this is, you know, maybe this is going to go down. Um, Ohio state, Receiver wise, is probably the 
toughest set of receivers that Clemson has seen all year? I mean, I'm trying to think. They, they didn't have to play North Carolina. Miami does. Well, I mean, they may be the best. They may be the best group of receivers sure. in the country. Right. Right. So, so I mean, it's this is like an order of magnitude above anything else they've played. I guess is what I'm trying to say. It's like we really haven't seen this Clemson secondary tested by by an elite receiver group because they didn't play UNC. Notre Dame didn't have Braden Lindsey and they didn't have Kevin Austin. So, I mean, they, they were basically playing guys on the outside for Notre Dame who were kind of backups entering the season. Miami doesn't scare anybody at, at the receiver position. I'm going through my head here as far as who Clemson played, and I really don't think they played anybody who scares you very much at at receiver. And so we haven't seen this Clemson defense have to play in such a way where it really has to worry about getting tore up in the passing game. They've been able to kind of go out and and play for those tackles for loss and you know play singles on the outside like, like Brent Venables likes to do. I, I'm interested to see how they handle an Ohio State passing game, which – a, on the one hand, I agree with you. I don't think Fields has – I'm not going to say like you did. I, I agree with you. I don't think it's fair to say he's regressed. I just don't think he has noticeably progressed this year. Um, but those receivers are nasty, and they didn't have Chris Olave in the Big Ten title game. They are missing a couple other important guys as well. It seems like Ohio State is pretty healthy going into this game. Clemson is getting healthier as well. I, Ohio State's ability to, to hit the big play I, I think could be – the the equalizer in in this ball game. Um, they're they're a little bit more explosive than Clemson is in certain areas. Um, Clemson's defense does have propensity to kind of give up the the home run shot on the back end. I mean they're they're ninetieth in the country in passing explosiveness allowed, which I think is partially by style. I mean Venables is okay with giving up the bombs if you can hit them right. It's just it's hard to hit them on on this defense. But when they do hit them, the size of those bombs is is pretty big. I also think one thing that we didn't get to see last year's game that, that might be different this year is Justin Fields last year was banged up going to that game. He really couldn't run very much, and they didn't design run him hardly at all. And I think he struggled to get out, get out of some of those pressures that Clemson was bringing. As far as I know, he's healthy now. I think this is a game they go all out running Justin Fields against Clemson, Keep, keeping the ball out of the hands of Trevor Lawrence, keeping that Ohio State defense off the field, I think Ohio State try, tries to, to man up and, and run the football on them and then hit play action shots. Because like you said, Fields has not been good this year just dropping back, reading the defense, getting rid of the ball on time. If, if it's not quick game, if it's not play action, he's kind of just been you know, good, not great. I think that's a, an interesting prediction, probably a good call that you could see Ohio State lean on Justin Fields in the run game a little bit more. Uh he hasn't done it. Let's, I'm just looking at his numbers right now. Like it's not as if he's run it a lot this year. He had 12 carries for 35 yards against Northwestern. He had a big game run against Michigan State. He had 78 yards against Indiana, and then he had not much against Rutgers, not much against Penn State. Um, but I do think that that's like in as a way to just sort of add a new wrinkle, kind of the like almost the way that Clemson was it last year that all of a sudden Trevor Lawrence turned into he was wasn't it where Trevor Lawrence turned into like a yeah that long run yeah he's like the workhorse time. running the football all of a sudden um at the end of the season there for for Clemson I could see that because I do think that that makes sense and try and because the, look, here's a here's the concern I think as, as much as anything is just I just don't know that Ohio State 
is going to get a lot of stops on this Clemson team. I, that, that's kind of where I'm most confident. And so, look, if Justin Fields can come out there and play his kind of game and, like, ball out at, and, and get the ball to Olave and Wilson and all those guys, then, then this, could, this could be a shootout and Ohio State's got a shot to win. Uh, I just have a lot more confidence in producing offensively and I have just a little bit more hesitation in, in, in Ohio State's ability to do the same. Not that I don't think they can, but I just want one I'm, I'm like really confident in and the other I kind of, you know, I could see it both ways. This could also be a pretty big ATN game. Um, I, I, like you, I share concerns about the Ohio State pass defense and giving up big plays and, and just the, the breakdowns there in pass coverage. Um, but something else that stands out on my screen as red Explosive rushes allowed. Ohio State, 109th in the nation on a percentage basis. I mean, guys, there's only like 127 teams playing this year because you had you know, a couple that, that weren't playing or didn't play enough games to qualify. 109th is bad. Now, I think part of that was some of the newness on defense and, and the pieces fitting together. And I mean, hell, Nebraska had only 17 points, but they, they had a number of explosive rushes in that game. You know, Penn State had, had a couple, I think, that were, you know, that, that they were able to pop. Rutgers probably had a couple that were kind of like before garbage. Like it wasn't technically garbage time, but everybody in the stadium knew it was basically garbage time by by the you know by the actual just watching the game, not the the stats definition. Um, you, you know, being able to look outside the box score. But 109th is 109th. I mean that that's that's still problematic if you're 109th in in rush explosiveness defense. And uh, Travis Etienne is like number one <laughs> in rush explosiveness. So. Man, that that's a concern. I, I think that if if you can't make Clemson one dimensional, it is just so hard to beat Trevor Lawrence. And that's what Notre Dame was able to do the first time, except they didn't have to play Trevor Lawrence, right? They they had they had to play, um, you know, DJ. So, right, it's going to be tough. But I, well, and that's I think they have a shot. That's what's so. I think that's what's so tough about Clemson right now is what Trevor Lawrence has become, which is almost like a very, it's he is a true dual threat quarterback. I mean that that's why I think Clemson. That's the that is the missing element here that makes Clemson this this juggernaut and and a little bit less beatable. Um, if 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 Trevor Lawrence or whoever is at quarterback is a stationary target and is just and that's kind of how we view Trevor Lawrence early in his career, but he has morphed into this, I, I think like legitimate dual threat quarterback. So you got Travis Etienne, you got to account for in the run game. You got uh, Amari Rogers and Cornell Powell and whoever you want to throw at yeah, on the perimeter in the pass game. And you have this new, and I don't even want to call it new, but, but definitely um, a, 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 an emphasized Trevor Lawrence run game that, that, that just, I, to me is just sort of the, the icing on the whole thing thing and makes it that much more difficult. So um, yeah. And I think that's what makes, I think that helps, Travis Etienne's explosiveness as well. So it's just going to be a real – and look, I think Jeff Halfley's not being here at Ohio State uh, to this point has been noticeable. And uh, I, as close as last year's game was, I think his absence is, is probably significant um, if you're looking at that sort of like how different these teams are 2019 versus 2020. I think one significant difference – is Jeff Halfley isn't on that sideline as defense coordinator. All right, so put on your your kind of crystal ball here. Or put on your crystal ball. What, what is that? So get out your crystal ball, your, right? Your magician <laughs> hat or something. 
Yeah, exactly. The, the, the Swami hat here. Right. We're doing an episode six days from now, and Ohio State has beaten Clemson. Mm-hmm. What, what in your mind went right for Ohio State or went wrong for Clemson? I think, I think I, I, I like your sort of um, approach that Justin Fields was a real factor in the run game. Um, I think they probably got a red zone turnover or something to that effect. And they were able to put up a ton of points and just you kind of win in a, in a, in a shootout. Um, it's just hard for me to envision this being like some sort of, you know, I don't know, 21, 17 kind of game. Like it just feels like this is going to be a lot of points scored. Um, and so if Ohio State's going to win it, it's going to have to be behind Ryan Day and Justin Fields, Chris Olave, Garrett Wilson, and that crowd. Um, and, and, that, that, and they're very capable of that. And so I guess that's kind of what I'm envisioning is just they, they get the ball last. This Ohio State team reminds me a little bit just in terms of like, like its kinetic energy, its, its potential because of the talent of that 2014 Florida State team, right? Which ultimately never put it together. Now they put it together for about 20 minutes in the first half and Jalen Ramsey drops, drops the, you know, the pick six going the other way. And, you know, Dalvin Cook or Dalvin Cook rather, you know, fumbles twice. Uh, one of which was, you know, going for a long score, and then it just absolutely snowballed on him. Um, but it, it, there was something in your mind. It was like, okay, you're not going to pick Florida State to win that game over Oregon because they haven't put it together all year. But it wouldn't completely shock you if they did, just because you you know how many of those dudes are going to have their names called on draft night. And I think with Ohio State, because they have played only six games and because they have had COVID issues in several of those games, I don't have a great handle on what this team's ceiling looks like. I think I've seen its floor. I, I just don't know about its ceiling. I, I think I agree with you that Clemson, it's just much easier to trust Clemson with, with, with Trevor. It's already kind of gone through some of its trials and tribulations and it's come out on the other side better for it. Uh, they, they seem to have found their answers. They know their offensive line is you know, good, but not great. And they, they seem to be playing around it and they, they've corrected for it. We're, we're kind of yet to see Ohio State fix all of its issues. Yeah. Um... To me, it, there's just a few, like I guys. I don't want to. I'm not. I'm not trying to be overly negative about Ohio State, but it just does. It does feel like there is something missing with this team. It just just feels like it's just a little like it hadn't been quite as clean as you want it to be. And usually, in the and, and I think the Florida State example is a great one. Like that thing, just everyone just kept on expecting a little more, and it never it just never did fully come together. And and then when in the big game like that's they got a little bit exposed. So we'll see. I mean, maybe it does come together for Ohio State. There, there's no question they're talented enough. Um, but uh, the the trust factor for sure for me is is in is in the Clemson camp. I, I also kind of think about what what are the weaknesses of these teams and who is better. Not from a, a stats perspective, but like from a personnel perspective. I, I think like what's the worst unit on Clemson's team? Probably the offensive line. I, I think. I mean, just like, like the unit doesn't stand out as like a national championship caliber. That's nothing group. new for Clemson. They always they they've been like surviving with that for the entirety of this run. Right. No, that's that's fair. Um, and they they, they schemed around it, I mean, beautifully. Several, I mean, several national championship games in a row. Um, I don't think Ohio State's D line is great. Like it's Haskell Garrett and then potential, but it's not Haskell Garrett and and proven playmakers. You know, on the other side, 
I would say Ohio State's secondary is probably its weakness that you'd want to attack most likely. And a couple of months ago, I probably wouldn't have said Clemson is super prepared to do that. But now with Powell emerging, you have Rodgers are throwing the ball well to ETN and, and, and Lawrence's legs just put that much more stress on the secondary in terms of you know, what kind of coverages you can call and what, what you want to play. Um, that's, yeah, I, I'm on your side here. I, I think Clemson is, uh, mm-hmm. I, I think Clemson is, is the, the correct favorite. I just, I don't know if I want to lay more than one score. So what, how do we attack this Alabama Notre Dame game? How, how do you want to approach this? Do you want to try to bend your mind and knots and figure out what the path to victory is for Notre Dame? Or are we just throwing our hands up on this one? I, I think I just kind of want to make a statement about Notre Dame, right? I do not think Notre Dame's a fraud. Uh, I think that they're legitimately a – I think there's about four teams, maybe five, that you could make a really good case for that are the number four quality team in the country. This year, I think there's a pretty good drop-off between Bama, Clemson, Ohio State, and then everybody else. And probably a drop-off, honestly, between Bama and those next two. So, like, right. I don't... And even Bama and Clemson, probably. Yeah, right. Like, I don't think... I gotta, it's under, well, like, like we just said, and we'll see, I guess, you know, that, that, that that's, now it feels like I'm piling on Ohio State. But it, it, to me, it feels like one and two, and definitely one, and then everybody else. I, I think that's fair, right? And, I mean... Sample size, obviously, the Ohio State makes it kind of tough. Notre Dame, we have a pretty good sample size on. Um, but like, I don't think there's any argument that Notre Dame really didn't deserve to go. And this is a much better team, I think, than the team that got crushed by Bama in that 2012 Orange Bowl where uh, was Eddie Lacy was just spin-moving guys and and look, look, looked like he ate the whole deer, not, not just the deer antler spray. You know, I mean, the guy, the guy they were just – Physically, they were that much better. And maybe in this game, that will be the case. But I do think that Notre Dame has, has proved it itself that it belongs in the playoff conversation. And it's just, it's unfortunate for them that they have to play you know, this Alabama team in this year. Because this is not a great matchup, I don't think, for Notre Dame, both personnel-wise and then also stylistically. Um, some stuff that scares me a little bit here on this side of things. Uh, I just... <laughs> Notre Dame's offense, I know we have kind of had a little mea culpa on Ian Book. He's better than we used to think he was. He's still not, I don't think, on the level of the other quarterbacks in, uh, in, in this playoff. And I, I, I do put Mac Jones over him, even though Mac Jones has you know, much better weapons. Um, Alabama is number six in passing explosiveness. Notre Dame is 69th. The problem here is that Okay, you know, you have this nice team. They're hitting some singles. They're hitting some doubles. Hey, man, we scratched out a run. That was nice. Oh, they turned a double play to prevent the big rally. Bama's like, oh, walk, single, three-run jack. And all of a sudden, you're down 3-1. And they just you, – you keep trading keep trading, you know, sevens for threes. And, and it just – it's very tough to compete with the, with the big playability. We've talked about this all season. Like The really elite teams in college football are the ones that are hitting these huge plays. Consistently, and Bama just—they just hit the ball over the fence way, way more often than, than Notre Dame does, and that's just that's a, that's a problem. The other thing I, I see is that Notre Dame's defense kind of dares you to do this stylistically, and they're very good defensively. I, I really like Notre Dame's defense quite a bit. I think Clark Lee does an awesome job now. The Vanderbilt coach, and they're 11th in SP Plus defense you know, per Bill Connolly. But they're 79th in passing explosiveness allowed. 
Like, that's the one thing. This Notre Dame defense is like, hey, all right, we dare you to beat us over the top. And Bama's like, all right, let's see, strap in here. Um, so that's problematic, man. And Notre Dame doesn't have Braden Lindsey. They don't have Kevin Austin. And, you know, guys, they lost injury early in the season. It, it certainly, I don't think we should forget that. It limited their potential as far as their, their upside in the pass game. But now they also don't have their starting center or I believe their backup center as well. And the main strength of this Irish team on offense was that offensive line and controlling controlling the ball, not putting Ian Book and bad down in distance, letting Ian Book have as much time in the pocket as he possibly needed to process the defense he was seeing and make the right read. I don't think their old line was nearly as good in round two against Clemson. And I understand the Tigers had some guys back that they didn't have in round one. But I think part of that was the offensive line injuries that they've suffered. So I, I just don't think this Notre Dame team is peaking at the right time to have a real shot to pull this upset. Yeah, um, I agree. So I think the the as I look at Alabama in this year, so the teams that are probably most similar to Alabama that that, uh, excuse me, teams that are probably most similar to Notre Dame that Alabama's played, probably Texas A&M and Georgia in terms of, you know, playing, they're going to play good defense. They're, um, they're pretty good up front. They're, you know, they're going to try to pound the rock on offense and both those games, let's see, what was it? 28 points and 17 points um, were the two margins of victory. Um, the teams that have actually threatened Alabama I don't know if we really count Ole Miss as threatening Alabama, but whatever. 63-48, that, there, there were some sweats there at some point. I think Nick Saban was relieved to get out of there. And then Florida, 52-46, and Florida was just able to, to get in a little bit of a shootout. I just don't know if this Alabama team is beatable unless you can get in a shootout with them. I'm not saying that they are unbeatable, but I don't know that the style of play that Notre Dame is going to use to try to beat this Alabama team just can do it. And then that's not to say that Notre Dame is choosing the wrong style of play. I mean, they have to do what their strengths are. They can't try to go be old miss against this Alabama team. They're not capable of that. Um, but I just, I, you know, Alabama is just that they, they make the most out of every at bat. Like they're, they're just too damn good. And every at bat, like I, I'm trying to think of like even saying something like, well, if Notre Dame can just, you know, force them to get kick field goals in the red zone um, and then possess the football. And Brian Kelly has has indicated that like he's like he's admitted he's almost he's almost conceded like, look, we're going to have to try to possess the football in this game. We're just it's just just a reality. Um, I, I just don't know that that Alabama does kick field goals. Like I'm just seeing, I'm looking at their Bill Conley's numbers. They are, yeah, they're six in the country in points per scoring opportunity. Um, so I just, I just don't know what it looks like. I mean, obviously there are ways. I mean, there's a, you get a few turnovers, you get a few big plays, you get a few long drives, you force field goals, you get some red zone turnovers, whatever. Like there's a lot of things that could happen to make this Notre Dame game closer or or a potential upset but it's just really hard to envision because the things that would happen are very uncharacteristic of Alabama I, I completely agree there I mean it, it's 
it is hard to imagine how this goes down. I, I think you're right. It's <laughs> Notre Dame plays a little bit more conservatively, defensively, does not allow the big play. Alabama gets impatient, maybe, and tries to create the big play when it's not there. They throw a couple of interceptions. Um, I do think this Notre Dame defense is more physical and more athletic than people are giving it credit for. Like, there's a lot of this media narrative out there that, oh, hey, these guys, you know, they're, they're we, we saw what happened last time they get in the playoff. And yeah, but that Bama offense that, that, that boat raced them in the Orange Bowl was, was not like, that's not nearly as good as this Bama offense. This is a whole different, different animal. And so having a result similar to that in this game, I think is, is not quite the same, you know, verdict, right? Maybe if Bama turns it over a couple times, Notre Dame cashes in its own red zone opportunities, and then the Irish are able to hit some kind of big plays. That's possible. Bama has allowed big plays at times this year, particularly you know through the air. They they've had some busts. Uh, but let's 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 pull out our beating Nick Saban rubric. Uh, we, we went over this with A and M, and also with Georgia in those games. So those are basically the two games, and then a little bit for the Florida. Uh, and Bama thing. Do you have guys who can win one-on-one matchups on the outside? Because if not, Saban's going to sit in one-on-one matchups on the outside every single time and force you to beat it. And the answer for A&M, ultimately because of injury and because of opt-out, was was no. And the answer for Georgia was kind of no, although I think that they used some some nice young guys and um, the kid from California who was committed to LSU for a while. uh, Man, Burton. Yeah. Like he has some nice things there, but they were also playing a dude who was a walk-on at quarterback, and for a month we, you know, were kind of force-fed that narrative that he was better than a walk-on. Uh, but you know, now we're now we're seeing he's probably not. I like who on the Irish, on the outside scares you. Like is Pat Sertan? You think he's sleeping pretty well this week? Because I I do. Nobody. Nobody does. That's the problem. And maybe like the, so maybe the answer, because everyone's got to find these alternate answers in the playoffs. Uh, we talked about the Trevor Lawrence thing last year, running the football. Like, and, and Kyron Williams has been one of the best quarterback, one of the best running backs in college football. But I wonder if there's an, uh, an increased role for a guy like maybe Chris Tyree in this game, the, the really speedy true freshman and, and his ability to maybe be a, just like a wheel route guy or an angle route guy out of the backfield. And, and just because they got to find a way to generate, they do need to find a way to generate some big plays. They need to find a way to, to score points. There's just the, the, the dam's going to break at some point uh, in that game. And so they've got to be able to match and score some points. And so, um, look, they've got some weapons, um, but I just wonder where, you know, whether they're going to be able to find some additional big plays and, and where they come from. So I, I was on, I forget what radio show it was, but it was last week and I was, they, they had me on and they were talking about how, you know, Nick Saban has built this defense now to counteract the spread offense. Right. And maybe this defense isn't prepared to go back and play more of a pro style type offense. And I'm like, man, I get that, but I don't know. Like Nick Saban is pretty <laughs> damn good at, yeah, you know, like this is kind of what he made his bread, or, you know, bread and butter on. Like they they shut down those pro style offenses for for a long time. I mean, LSU didn't cross the fifty until the thing was over, right? So, yeah, that I just 
I don't know. I don't want to denigrate Notre Dame here. I think they've actually had a really nice year. I think this is a damn good football team. It's just, A, I don't think they're picking at the right time, given their injuries and their personnel. And B, I just don't like this matchup for them. Like I wouldn't be talking this way if it was Notre Dame, Ohio State. Um, you know, and after seeing the Clemson game, obviously you're not going to pick Notre Dame to beat those guys. But I, I don't think we'd be talking like they have zero shot to beat Clemson. Yeah, I think Ohio State is, is more equipped to beat uh, Alabama. Yeah. I, I, you know, and yet that said, I don't think anyone that's not in like throw A and M in there, like any of the other candidates hit the fourth spot. I don't think would be any better shape right now in this conversation than what we're having. And I mean, I don't count Florida because they missed their opportunity. They got three losses, but anybody else that would be claiming uh, that they deserve a shot in this, in this four hole, I, you know, good luck. You, you know, you, you can get the same treatment in this conversation that Notre Dame's getting. All right. So be next saving rank the teams for the four hole that you would most like to play to least like to play. Oklahoma, Notre Dame, Florida, A&M. Oklahoma, Notre Dame, Florida, A&M. I would most like to play A&M, then Notre Dame, then probably Oklahoma, and then Florida. I still think Florida is... I long thought Florida was sort of the... They just look like the fourth best team in the country to me. That doesn't mean that they should be in the playoffs. They shouldn't. They lost three games. But in terms of best chance at winning on a neutral site and any given Saturday or whatever, I'm probably going to take Florida over most of those other. But, uh, but Oklahoma's close because uh, just Oklahoma can have a game where they're just that good. And they just have things click. And they got playmakers. And they got a quarterback that can get hot. And so Oklahoma definitely is is uh, can make a case. But I think Alabama just beat the team that's most equipped to beat them outside the top three. I think that's right. I mean, the way I would put it is Florida's best, I think, is the best out of those four teams. They just, you know, they didn't play their best on two notable games, including if you look at Bill Connolly's stuff, the the most improbable win of the year as far as like what actually happened in the game and you know what 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 the result was, but it it counts if the shoe fits. What was that game? The AM game? No, the uh, the LSU game. Oh, I think it was like like, like a one percent post game win probability or some something crazy like that. I saw on on, uh, on Bill's Twitter there. Um, all right, we should probably take a break and sell some ads. You know, we got to pay bills, got to buy, buy some toys for uh, for Christmas and birthdays and all this stuff. So when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit on the Auburn job, the hiring of Brian Harson, maybe a little bit of what went down there, and we're going to use our, of course, Barton and Bud grading scale of the love it, get it, don't get it. Uh, hiring judgment as opposed to letter grades since, you know, coaching searches are kind of a wash. All right. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. 
That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. And we're back. So, Barton, uh, over the break, Auburn hires Brian Harson. That is... uh, I'll admit that once we once the Kevin Steele coup didn't officially like fully form, I really didn't know what was going to happen with this coaching search. And Billy Napier allegedly turned down Auburn. Um, he made luck his way into you know being fought over by Texas and LSU next year potentially, much like Tom Herman did four years ago. Who knows? Just throwing it out there. But I did not see Brian Harson being hired for for this job, and I'm not saying it's a bad hire. Just I. This is not a guy that I had on my radar. It's 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 kind of one of those ones that makes you think. Hell of a job by Auburn keeping that thing under wraps. I mean, there was all kinds of reporting going on. All kinds of, you know, this guy turned that down. This guy's out of the mix. This guy's going to interview. I didn't hear Brian Harson's name once. And the whole time, until he was announced as the head coach, I did not hear his name once. And so that leads me to believe that perhaps, and I'm not saying there was any like any uh, fake news, but, but the people that were feeding the reporters, the information, I don't know that they really had the full information themselves. I think that it, it appears Alan Green, the Auburn athletic director kept a tighter circle than, um, than it initially seemed. And so Props on you, man. Um, I will grade the higher. Uh, my three options are: don't get it, get it, and um, what's the what's the our best? Love, love it. it, love it, love it, get it, don't get it. I I grade this a get it. Here's here's the reason. Here's the reason I like it, and then you know we can talk about some of the 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 things to worry about in it as well. But there, here's the reason I like it. I think, I think I talked about this. Um, in one of these other coaching search situations too. But like there's this kind of silly perspective that like, you know, in order to beat Saban, in order to win the SEC, you got to get somebody that knows how to, it's been there, like knows how to do it. Like you got to get somebody that's recruited in those, in those wars that's, has played in the big games in that conference. Has had Gary Danielson calling his games and like, like why? Why do we have to think like that? The maybe the exact thing we need to do is to find someone that does it totally different and someone that's just a really good football coach and can come in and inst- install and instill a really strong culture and do it a different way. And make the SEC adapt to them. I, I make no mistake. I mean, there are challenges in that league and there's standards in that league that no other league in college football has to match. But you can do it. There's different ways to skin a cat. And I think that Brian Harson comes in and there's uh, th- things are a little foreign to him. But this is a guy that's been just absolutely fiending for a football program and a football conference that prioritizes football in a more meaningful way. Like he's been, he's been basically like fighting the, with the mountain West to, to for, 
or, or fighting with the Boise State administration, at least, to try to like get the hell out of the Mountain West. I mean, that's a guy that wants to play in the big games. Like that's a guy that's frustrated. And so that that speaks to me to a little bit of, of enthusiasm and passion and competitiveness that probably you do need for this job. Um, so my initial, my initial reaction was, yeah, okay, I'm with it. I can deal with this. This is a good hire. I think this is a, this makes sense. Now let's see what happens. Cause it could go the other way too. So Nick Saban's uh, favorite memory of coaching in the sec before he got to LSU was. No, didn't have one. Right. Uh, and Urban Meyer's favorite SEC memory of coaching in the SEC before Florida. Right. Yeah. Didn't have one. So the guys who have have won uh, like seven of the SEC's, what, 11 championships in, in this uh, this millennia, never coached in the SEC before they got to those schools at which they won their first SEC, or their first title in the SEC. Now, that said, I do think there are some challenges, not that you have to have experienced right, of coaching the SEC. But I think you need to at least have a plan for them, and you need to be aware of the realities of them. Like recruiting down here is a different game. It's why you see people in the Big Ten and the Pac-12 complain when one coach starts to kind of push the limits, right? And we're, we're going to recruit guys who are verbally committed elsewhere. We're going to you know, maybe do a little extra benefit stuff that formerly didn't happen as much in this league. Or wait, we're we're, we're, we're giving a three-star some extra benefits now? Like, normally that doesn't happen, right? Like, normally it's just everybody kind of knows some of the really top kids get a little something and uh, you know, everybody else just plays for the love of the game out here. Um, but if you know that going in, that you may need to drop a couple casino chips for for, for the parents on, on their ride home, or it's important that one of your boosters is a car guy or whatever, and you know that Auburn's expectation and the, one of the main reasons they fired Gus Malzahn is because he was losing battles to Georgia in the state of Georgia and they didn't sign anybody from Georgia this year and they were losing battles to Clemson and maybe slipping a little bit in Mobile to LSU and, and that type of thing. And that you need to be hashtag all in. If you know that going in, I don't think there's any real problem with hiring a guy who hasn't necessarily done it before, as long as he's aware of how this works and how the game needs to be played. Uh, actually, uh, uh, speaking of played, I want to play a clip right now from the 24 seven sports football recruiting show. And this is Brandon Huffman. Uh, talking about Brian Harson's recruiting style, uh, which so we'll give this a listen. Further up north, Boise State lost coach Brian Harson over to Auburn. Let's start with with that because I feel like there's enough body of work uh, of what he did in Boise to suggest that this wasn't just a, a Chris Peterson reboot. You know, obviously he kept a lot of the same. Um, methods and the same thought process and the way to evaluate. But I think he was in far enough detached that he proved that he was very capable of taking a job in the SEC and taking a marquee job in the SEC. What do you think his ceiling is as a recruiter for the Auburn Tigers? I've made this comparison for a number of years now that Boise State basically is the Gonzaga of football when it comes to the West, where Boise State would win its share of recruiting battles over Pac-12 schools, and you weren't surprised anymore. Maybe early on, 15 years ago, when Dan Hawkins was still there, when Chris Peterson was getting started, you were still surprised when Boise State won a recruiting battle. But as we've gotten over the last few years, we've seen a number of Pac-12 recruits 
have half the Pac-12 recruiting them, and they still go to Boise State, whether it was Brett Ripon in the 2015 class, whether it was, you know, more recently, guys like J.R. Skinner, Hank Bachmeyer, you know, he has been able to really capitalize on Boise State's status as a football program, as one of the premier group of five programs, but it also showed that, you know, he could have gone after guys that were more low-hanging fruit and not tried to go and win key recruiting battles and go after the guys that maybe Boise State had a more realistic chance at. Now he's going up against arguably the greatest dynasty in college football over the last 20 years and certainly over the last 15 years since Nick Saban's gotten there in Alabama. So intimidation cannot be a part of the package there. Harson had to take that job knowing just how hard it was to recruit against his in-state foe, let alone the rest of the SEC. But this is a guy who has shown that he's okay recruiting against the big boys, maybe against schools that more realistically should be getting the players that Harson was getting at Boise State. So I think he's got a lot of potential to recruit well at Auburn. Obviously, the downside is that the majority of his time, other than, you know, a couple assistant coaching stops at Texas or at Arkansas State, have been out west. So there isn't the, the familiarity or the comfort with schools in the south or with high school programs in the south because he just hasn't really recruited down there. But Boise State has recruited Florida. Boise State's recruited Texas. Boise State recruited the west coast. So Harson still has ties into three regions that he was able to recruit and pull guys to Boise. Now imagine trying to sell those same regions to the SEC. So I think that, you know, given that he's one of the few coaches in the SEC who's got extended time out West, obviously Mike Leach had time out West, Lane Kiffin as well. But I think given Harson's experience as a head coach out West, it's going to be a little easier for him to recruit the West Coast at Auburn than maybe it was for Gus Melzon or Gene Chizik prior to him. Let me pose you this question. It's pretty general. It's pretty broad. And, and I'm just very interested to hear kind of your thoughts on this. Do you feel like it's, it's more difficult to go from a Boise State to an Auburn from a recruiting standpoint and, and maybe broadening your recruiting pool? Or would it be easier to go the other way and, and maybe go from an Auburn to a Boise where then it diminishes and it kind of minimizes uh, the recruiting pool, the talent pool, you're only going after a specific recruit. Uh, I mean, there are a lot of challenges there when that pool expands and you have to, like you said, fight off some of these other SEC schools or battle it out for for the five-star prospect instead of that borderline three-star that you know could has the potential to be an NFL player. Yeah, I mean, obviously you look at what Chris Peterson did when he got to Washington and how he was able to recruit at Washington, going toe-to-toe with a lot of those recruits and those schools that he was going toe-to-toe, but now he was doing it with a Washington logo on his chest as opposed to a Boise State logo on his chest. And I think Harson is going to have that going for him where he's going to realize it's easier to sell Auburn to a kid from Florida and to Texas and from Texas to maybe it is to sell Boise State because there is still that mentality and mindset you know, Division One football is Division One football, but we have the group of five, we have the Power Five, and if you're not being recruited by a Power Five school, then maybe you're you don't you're not as good as you think. And so, I think he's going to find it's a little easier to recruit to Auburn, even if it is standing in the shadow of Alabama in state, even if it is having to go against recruits against schools like Georgia and Florida and Tennessee and other SEC schools. I think 
there are obviously some disadvantages to Auburn being that there's so many other SEC schools that have to recruit against. But I think in the case of Harston, there's so many advantages where you're not convincing a kid to come to the Mountain West and play a game at nine o'clock on a Thursday night or at eight o'clock on a Saturday night. You're playing in the SEC where those games are all on prime time or all during the day and everybody's watching it. And you look at, you know, Super Bowl MVPs from the SEC, NFL MVPs from the SEC. I think that advantage when you've been at a school like Boise State makes him just the appeal is so much greater to a coach like that because now he realizes he's got many more advantages in his back pocket to recruit a kid. I think the flip side is a lot of times we see this in basketball where a coach maybe has been at a power five school or a high major program, then he goes to a mid major program and given their track record, you think recruiting would be that much easier, but it isn't. I mean, look at Jim McElwain. He was at Colorado State. He was trending upward, went from Colorado State to Florida. Now he's at Central Michigan, and recruiting isn't as easy to Central Michigan, isn't as easy to a group of five schools. Using another Auburn example, Terry Bowden. When Terry Bowden was at Auburn, he had an undefeated season there. Then he was at Akron. I think now he's at Louisiana Monroe. It's a lot easier to recruit to those bigger schools than it is to the smaller schools, and there's also the budgetary differences. There's also the, the staff differences, the, the, the size of your staff that you don't have to worry about when you're at an SEC school compared to when you do at a group of five school. And I think that that's something that more coaches would rather go up rather than take the high power, power five job and go to a group of five because there's so many more disadvantages when you're at a group of five school. So really appreciate Huffman hitting us with that, with that info there, and that's that's good intel. Nobody covers the West Coast like like you know Biggins and Huffman and Blair, so they do a great job on that show. Um, I'm going to go ahead and give this a, a get it. I think you get an accomplished coach with an, with a winning record. He's won multiple titles out out there of of the Mountain West. Um, the reason I don't go as far as love it is because not because of the lack of SEC experience, but you know the lack of you know like major P5 experiences. Maybe a little bit of a concern, slight. And also the fact that you know the guys who coached Boise previously, some of them went on to great things, and some of them, you know, didn't go on to to quite as good, you know, quite as good of things. Uh, obviously, Chris Peterson did awesome when he got to Washington, but Dan Hawkins did not do a very good job at Colorado. But ultimately, I think this is a pretty good get for Auburn. Is he a major upgrade over Gus Malzahn? I don't know. It's tough, it's, it's tough for me to sit here and say he's a major upgrade over Malzahn, but sometimes you just need new blood, and I definitely don't think he's a downgrade. I think that's a good reminder from Huffman that Brian is a good recruiter because my snap immediate reaction is like, okay, like the Boise State, OKG stuff, like our kind of guys, and like it's the Chris Peterson thing, and it's about whatever, five-star culture, other five-star prospects. and and um and and there is that laced in there, and that's important and, and good. That's a that's a that's a good thing. But I but now that Huffman is sort of my memory, I do I, I am sitting here thinking about like you know George Holani was a four star running back out of like the um, that top league down there in Southern California, the Trinity League, and like the they've they land elite. They 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 will like they'll go out in the land four star kids like you said they will beat I mean Hank Bachmeyer, uh, the quarterback had a bunch of he was a four star kid with a bunch of Pac twelve offers like they have won those battles 
And so I do think that that's, that's good to remember and to remind ourselves of that. I'm interested in what, like how his approach is going to work because his press conference. And one of the things he said was he made a point that like, they're going to recruit nationally and my, and I, and whether he said it or whether he just implied it, I took it to mean they are going to recruit out West. And I, I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, to be honest with you. I know that look, Alabama and LSU and Ohio state and all these schools are recruiting nationally. And so, yes, if you want to recruit with them, you got to recruit nationally. If you want to build national title teams, you got to have a national roster. Um, and yet, so I guess, I guess we'll just like find out who he's recruiting out there. I mean, if he's out there just sort of hunting California for, I'm not sure that's necessarily the answer that Auburn's looking for on the recruiting trail because the sleeper in California probably isn't better than the sleeper in Alabama. Um, so I'm, I'm curious what that approach looks like. I, I agree with you on that. I, I listened to this well, and my thought was for how long, right? If you're a new coach coming and taking a recruiting class, I'm actually working on a project right this right now, but man, your first recruiting class, this little short period class that he wasn't even hired before a signing period. So like, you really can't put this one on him at all. Like, this is Kevin Steele's recruiting class. But if you're an outside hire, if you're not in an internal promotion, like, like a Ryan Day, or Lincoln Riley, the attrition rates on your first class are enormous. I mean, you're talking about, in many of these cases, over half of the class being gone after just two years. It's, and it, I think a lot of it is just you're having to take these guys that you've not had time to foster relationships with. So if Brian Harson is saying, hey, I got a lot of good relationships out on the West Coast, I know these players out on the West Coast, I'm going to go ahead and try to leverage those to the extent that I still know these kids out on the West Coast, you know, for now, maybe this class, maybe next year's class too, a little bit. Awesome. If that's his long-term strategy, I I don't know if that works. We, we saw Auburn try to dip into Texas pretty heavily w- when it hired Chad Morris with with kind of mixed results. They, they just lost Jaden Roberts, the, the offensive guard uh, who, who flipped to Alabama over the weekend. Um, you know, that I do think Auburn needs to do a, a better job in the Deep South especially as some of these other programs try to go nationally, there is the, the risk of moving like moving away from their from their base. And Auburn maybe can clean up a kid that maybe Clemson says, hey, we're going to go to Ohio to get this guy. Well, maybe there's a kid in Clemson's backyard or 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 you know on the Georgia border that that Auburn can get. But as a short-term thing, I love it, man. Like you need to use every possible resource that you can. I just I agree with you. And culturally, I don't know how you say this. Some of these Cali kids don't strike me as being a tremendous fit at a place like Auburn, right? It's just, it's a different culture. You know, I, I don't know. Do you think that Brian Harson can make Auburn like a, here's the problem. Here's what's hard is I'm sitting here thinking like, all right, can Brian Harson make Auburn like a, like a Washington of the, the SEC, like a team that's, you know, Chris Peterson built Washington in by recruiting again, like OKGs, um, developing them. They were, you know, they're always going to play good defense. They're they're going to be a couple of really good players away from the playoffs, and maybe every once in a while they they hit it, and they did. Like what the one time? I'm thinking, you know, does like Brian Hart like? 
if Brian Harson does that at Auburn, then he's Gus Malzahn, basically, right? So that's what's really difficult about this hire is, is there's a lot of ways that we can envision this and say, this is what success looks like. And yet that successful definition is what got the previous coach fired. And, and even within that sort of um, uh, hypocrisy or, or, or conflict, I, I, I still don't even necessarily hate the idea of firing Gus Malzahn to go land. Like if you landed another version of Gus Malzahn, then that's not so bad either. You just get a, you just get, Hey, things are freshened up and you kind of keep on rolling, doing what you're doing. You keep on having some success and maybe you don't get to be national title contenders, but you still are what you are. And at least you get some new energy and new life and some new you know, kind of fun again for the fans. In, in, in two weeks in, in a normal year, non COVID, we would be going to Nashville or San Antonio or where else do we have the convention at? Normally it's kind of Louisville. Yeah. And, yeah, right. So like, you know, some of those, some of those type cities, um, well, I think Nashville is better than Louisville, but um, you know, obviously. And you talk to these agents and you talk to assistant coaches and, and they're like, wait, why would this guy leave right for this job, for this job? And they use this term all the time. And the term is restart the clock, right? Now, Gus Malzahn did not leave to restart his own clock, clearly. That if he had left for Arkansas in 2017, you know, following the 17th season, that would have been an absolute restart the clock move. But I do think that Auburn kind of wanted to restart the clock because it saw its momentum as a program was not on the upswing, right? Bo Nix did not take the next step that he really needed to take under Chad Morris. The recruiting was not trending in the right direction. I mean, they were on the precipice of kind of becoming not just the number four team in their division, but sort of the number four program in their division in some ways, with LSU winning a title in 19, with AM finishing number five in the polls this year, and both those teams beating Auburn in recruiting. I, I think they needed some some new blood in there, so that's why I got it. Also, it's not my money, and they're not taking like education funds from the state of Alabama. This is two boosters, primarily, who ponied up this cash, who are very successful in business, and this is kind of like their pro franchise that they kind of own, except Maybe that maybe they don't have quite the level of ownership they thought they did because they, they didn't get to pick the coach. They they got to pick when the guy got fired, but not the not the new one. Yeah. Well, is that is that our uh, have we covered all the angles on Harson and Auburn? Anything left in the notebook there? I, like what defines success if if you fired Gus? Is, is it like do you think if if he gives him the same results Gus gave him for when did Gus get there? Twenty twelve. Gus got what eight years. Yeah. Let's just say, all right, let's just assume Gus got eight years. Pretty good eight years. Then I think I think Gus had a successful tenure and he got fired after eight years. And if Harson gives them what Gus gave them, he will have had a successful tenure and he'll get fired in eight years. Like I think that's kind of just hey, they'll take another swing at it in eight years, and it was it would it would have been a pretty fun, pretty, pretty successful, pleasing run to get there. But I just that's kind of the way I see this. Maybe, maybe he lasts a little longer. I don't know, but I mean, look, I I'm impressed with the dude. I mean, he's a, he is an intense competitive guy and that's probably um, quality. Number one, you have to have in the sec. Uh, and so, but, but I, I don't anticipate this raises the ceiling at Auburn necessarily. Um, 
I, I, I think this is more of a high floor pick, and there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. Because um, there's a lot of a lot of the guys that you like swing for the fences on. There's some pretty low floors with them, right? Who would would you have a Lovett pick for Auburn? Like like who was on Barton's Lovett list? If Brian if Brian Harson is on the Get It list, I think I would have. I'm 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 kind of big on Napier. I think I probably would have been willing to say Lovett with Napier. Um, That's fair. But that might be the only one. But it's not a no-doubt slam dunk that you would say like, oh, for sure. Yeah, no, nothing is. And part of that is because the difficulty of the job and the expectations that are placed upon this guy. Like, they just fired Gus Malzahn, who had you know one of the best eight-year stretches in the history of the school. Yeah. Unless you get an Urban Meyer... There is there really was no safe, safe, like like sure thing. Can you imagine if, if we had Urban Meyer at Auburn? I mean, we would literally Especially as much as Urban leans into the rivalry stuff. Like the school up north with Alabama. That would have been that'd have been sick. That'd have been a fun, that'd have been a fun little uh you know, I mean that, hey, Urban Urban is he embraces gas on the fire and the rivalry stuff. So that would have been like maybe Harson will, st- will stoke those fires as well. I mean, he's he's not he's not afraid to speak his mind. Certainly, I just his first question in the press conference was basically like, "What do you think about Alabama?" And he was like, he 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 deflected it pretty effectively. Awesome. He did not he did not embrace the question, but um, that's going to be the that's that's the new reality. What, what is the right answer for that question? Like, I, I really respect what Coach Saban's done up there, obviously, but there's no reason we we can't also achieve you know that elite level of success. I mean, basically, it's what you got to say, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess you can just totally be like, look, we have to beat Alabama. I'm here to beat Alabama. Nick Saban is the standard, but uh, we're going to p- compete every day uh, for that Alabama game, and that Iron Bowl game. That would be that would be with the Urban Meyer response. Yeah. Now, Brian Harson's response was, we, we need to go one, one and know every day. Um, and so, but I, I don't, I I have no doubt that Urban Meyer would have been like beating Alabama is the most important thing at this university. Every single day we work, we'll have the Iron Bowl in mind. And so that could have been the alternate response he could have taken. But um, the the more coachy response is definitely want to know every day. So Brian Harson gets two quote get it grades from the Barton and Bud Show, and uh, certainly a much better coaching hire than we thought they were going to make after like the first ten days of that search based on the reports that were coming out, like much better. <laughs> that, that had some serious potential. Oh, it did. But Alan Green, you did it, man. Congratulations. All right, guys, a uh, quick update here. Uh, we really appreciate you sending in all these Apple podcast reviews for us. In fact, we are at uh, 750 ratings. However, uh, Apple uh, is not making me super confident in my choice to perhaps switch to an iPhone, because they, which I think I'll do because everybody else is 24-7 uses one, and I don't want to be the lone green texture forever. Uh, they have not updated the Apple reviews since December 11th. So we know you guys have been sending those in a lot and you, you put your mailbag questions in there. You can certainly send those, send us those or send those to us rather on Twitter at Bud Elliott three at Barton Simmons. Is it Barton underscore Simmons or it's Barton Simmons at Barton Simmons. Barton Simmons. Okay. So at Barton Simmons at Bud Elliott three, just, uh, you know, send those to us, and we'll try to work them into the show next time. But we really appreciate all the questions you guys have been asking. I assume they're in there. I just can't see them. But I know the ratings number is going up, so we appreciate that. 
our bosses see that and we'll uh join you guys again soon see you Plus and the National Park Foundation present A Mountain of Zen. Are you still listening? Good. Take a deep breath. You needed a break. This Earth Week, you can live stream seven national parks for seven days on Paramount Plus. So, yes, you can literally stream a stream. Paramount Plus, official streaming partner of the National Park Foundation.